I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will, too. Hey, y'all. I'm back with Season 12 and with new theme music composed by our own sound designer and engineer, excellent, Brendan Burns. Do you love it? I do. So, welcome back to LBR. It's so good to be here. All right, y'all. Let's talk about the apocalypse. Can we? The pocky pockylypse. I know that a lot of this is, I mean, everything happening around the world, climate change, civil wars to the whole pandemic, it can all feel a little apocalyptic. So maybe it feels weird to actively seek out fictional stories that explore that space, but stay with me here. I think post-apocalyptic fiction can be healing even inspiring. Today's story actually inspired me to add some more practices, more ritual into my life, and I'll talk more about that after we read today's story. The Tin Man was published in a YA anthology, Reclaim the Stars, 17 Tales Across Realms and Space, and it was written by Lilian Rivera, an award-winning writer and author of a number of young adult and middle-grade novels. One of those novels is Never Look Back, a modern retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice set in the Bronx. It's being adapted as a feature film by Amazon. Lilium also has a new middle-grade novel out entitled Barely Floating, about a synchronized swimmer from Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. The protagonist of today's story, Alida, grew up in the Bronx and tells us she's Puerto Rican. There are all of these asides that are carefully doled out to the reader, hints as to the way things were before a pandemic happened and people fled the Bronx. Alida refers to that time as La Gran Fuga, or The Great Escape, which also happens to be the name of a salsa record put out by two all-time greats, musicians of Puerto Rican heritage, Willie Colon, and Hector Lavo. There is so much to draw from this story, and I sincerely hope you enjoy it. If you are so inclined, we've got a content advisory in the episode description. And now, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. (sighs) Ah. 
And let's begin. The Tin Man by Lilium Rivera First thing you do is drop to your knees and give thanks every morning. Hit them knees on that cold-ass floor. Ignore the goosebumps playing a raunchy bachata on your arms and legs and recite a few words. The words? Honestly, I don't think it's important. I recite the lyrics to the classic song Bodak Yellow. Some people might say the tune is not very spiritual, but who can argue with I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch, as a daily affirmation. Not I. Then the day begins. There was a whole list of things needing tending to. I peek out the window and a radiant beam of light pours through. I let it rest on my hands for a few seconds. Then I splash cold water from the container on my face to wake me up. I make a note to refill the barrel before the end of the day. I get dressed and drape my utility jacket over my shoulders. The last thing I do is strap them to my back. They usually don't like that part. Good morning. We're late, I say. Let's go. Silence. I'm serious. Don't give me that look, I say. You know today is a busy day for me. I pat down my pockets and make sure everything is secure open the door, and head out. The first stop is always the roof. It's where we keep the food. Before La Gran Fuga, residents grew their own food on the roof, community style. Everyone had shifts to take care of the garden, and we all shared the hall. Now there's only us. We don't have to share. Our apartment is on the last floor, but getting to the roof is no easy feat. The stairs are but crumbling facades of their past life, the result of an explosion done in anger by past residents. The makeshift bomb was strong enough to destroy the adjoining hallways that, at one time, connected the other projects to this one. The drop down to the lobby is ten stories. If I don't hoist the rope to the right spot, it would mean bye-bye, Alida. No one wants that, especially not the silent ones riding on my back. I tie the rope tightly around my waist and fling us across. I've done this hundreds of times. Here you go, I say. I unstrap them and gently place them on their favorite spot, on the roof. From there, they get the best view of our abandoned solitary burrow. Blocks upon blocks of empty buildings and stranded cars. No signs of life. Not a pigeon, a squirrel, or even a rat. It's been like this for a year, ever since La Gran Fuga. Those who couldn't bounce out of the city like most in the BX stayed behind, suffering for their choice. 
Once the coughs came, their timeline mostly ended in R.I.P. Well, most timelines, anyway. I brushed the dirt off of a couple of carrots. I still have leftovers from the beans I heated up yesterday and eat those. I sit by them and close my eyes to let the sun caress my thin cheeks. With a wet finger, I wipe a smudge off their face. I always press their right paw before I leave. If I don't, my day feels off. I press it, and the sound of their laughter fills the air. Everyone, come in. Get in. Closer. Ay, Dios mío. You guys, pay attention. First, Mommy's voice comes in loud and clear. She always had a commanding tone. In the background is Poppy and little Jonah. Happy birthday to my beautiful Nana. You are my sunshine and my future. This might not be what you would hope for in a quinceanera, but we promise to throw a big party after everyone gets over this flu. Happy kings! Jonah and Poppy scream. Little Jonah coughs. You used to love bunnies, so here's the biggest bunny ever. We love you, Alida. We will always be here for you. Then the recording stops. The giant stuffed bunny is called Jumbo Pawlet. There are three recordings on it, and depending on which paw I press, I get to hear them. One of them is of Jonah reciting a rap birthday song he made up. There's a lot of rhymes with the word cat. That, mat, sat. The third recording is of Poppy singing a slow jam. Love, Love, Love by Donny Hathaway. Poppy loved Hathaway. I try not to listen to that one too much because I get choked up every time I do. Only three recordings to remind me of my family and my broken heart. Only three. I'll see you guys later. I'll be back in time for dinner. I head out to the stairs. One apartment I converted into an exercise room. I located every piece of equipment I could find and set it up in this one bedroom. In another, I lined up a bunch of mirrors for the dance room. The classroom is located at the far end of the hallway where I set up with chairs. I use large slabs of white paper in the front of the kitchen. Depending on the day, I might study English, history, philosophy. Today is English, and I'm discussing who the true villain is in the novel Les Miserables. Capitalism, of course. And then there's the crying room. Everyone needs a crying room. Actually, it's more of a spiritual center, a place to meditate and think about things. My sign is cancer, so waterworks are nonstop. But I only allow emotions in the crying room for five minutes. There's work to be done, and tears will not help bring them back. I climb down the stairs to the empty streets. Water is the biggest issue. I'm lucky. The city upgraded the housing projects into a green living situation. The building has its own water system. It was one of the last city initiatives. That and the rooftop garden and the solar-powered heating system. 
The big drag is hauling the containers up to my apartment. But it has to be done. Keeping a schedule is key. I've got to keep us clean, healthy, focused. He wasn't always like this. The Bronx just happened to get hit the hardest. We were always known for going hard, but the sickness slowly took us out. First, my cousin got diagnosed. Then the neighbors. The family, two floors down, went out one by one. Papo, who was a boxer. His brother Christian, who was into singing R&B songs. The bodega owners, and so on. Hospitals couldn't handle the influx of sick people, so they just sent them home to deal with it. We tried everything from isolating the person to taking the drugs people on the streets were using. All the while, I never once got ill, not a cough or a fever. My family got worse, and I tried my best to save them. It wasn't enough. Everyone got hit until there was no one left but me. Funny how there was a time when I wished more than anything in the world to have my own bedroom and not share with Jonah. If only we lived in a regular apartment and not the projects. Funny how things change. You get used to it. The silence is deafening at times, but your body can get used to anything. Even this. I walked to Associated Supermarket to pick up a couple of cans. I stick to mostly vegetarian meals, high in protein. Good thing was I was already on that veggie kick, although Mommy was highly offended. You're Puerto Rican. If you don't eat meat, you're going to get sick. I grab enough food to last me for the week, and then it's back home. A quick detour to drop off my loot. When the sun sets, I heat up a dish and head up. I'm back. There was a long line at Associated. You know, cashier training. I joke. They are not on their stool. Instead, I find them on the floor. Did the wind knock you off? I ask, picking them up and dusting off the dirt. Weird. That's never happened before. You okay? Their silence has a bit of an angry tinge to it. It wasn't my fault you fell. This chilly April is enough for a light sweater and jacket, but there's no forceful wind. Not enough to move them. Let's go inside. It's been a long day, and we don't want to say something we might regret. I strap them on my back and go home. Inside, I place them on the bed I used to share with Jonah. I document the day in my journal and try to get some sleep. I feel off, but I'm not sure why. 
Let's get back to our story. The next day is dance class and history lessons. No shopping for food or water. It should be a more relaxing day, but I still feel this unease, as if I should be doing something more. This time, when I return to them on the roof for dinner, I find them back on the floor. What the hell? What's going on? I rush to the bunny. I don't get it. I left them right where I always do. There's no wind. The weather is perfect. Am I losing my mind? Maybe I should just rest, take a break from the work. I must be doing too much and not paying attention. Excuse me. A voice, not mine. I stare at the giant bunny. Did you say something? I ask. Yes, I said, excuse me. I turn around so quickly I trip over my own boots. Oh my God, what the hell is that? What the hell am I looking at? I can't believe what I'm seeing. A type of machine stands erect before me on this very roof. The machine is about my height, five feet with robotic arms and legs. A humanoid robot straight from every Netflix movie I binge-watch where they end up overrunning the place and killing humans. This can't be real. I pull out the gun. It's not my family's piece, but one I found during the many excavation trips I've taken. Yo! Don't freaking move or shoot! I scream so loud the heavens can surely hear me. Move the fuck away from us! I'm sorry to have startled you. The robot's voice sounds like the auto-tune used in all those horrible songs. It stands there, and I keep thinking... There must be more of them. Maybe hundreds ready to invade. A whole army of killer robots. Where did you come from? I ask. Then I can't stop myself from asking all the questions. Who programmed you? Are they looking at me right now? From the planet humans titled Gleese 3470C. My owner. Yes. There is no way any of this is true. This isn't a robot from Planet G or whatever. This is a toy that someone somewhere encoded to come here. An upgraded drone meant to end me. How did you get here? Tell me right now. Machine turns around, does a flip, and falls off the side of the building. Oh my God. I run to the edge of the roof to look, and there it is just as it lands on the ground. The robot turns back and starts grappling up the side of the projects, climbing it like a metallic spider. There isn't any time. I need to go. I grab Paulette and head to the exit, but before I can make it, the robot lands in front of the door, blocking my way. Nah, I'm not about to let this happen. I managed to keep us alive this long. I won't let this Goya tin can replace me. No, sir. I'm going to need you to step the hell away from us. Right now. I cock the gun. 
The machine nods its head and takes two steps away from the door. I have a message. The robot pauses and there's a clicking sound. It projects a video onto the side of the wall. I keep the gun pointed at the robot while trying to watch the recording. Materialized on the wall is a woman about my mother's age. She wears a colorful, long-flowing dress that would definitely drag on the floor. Her hair is long and wavy, reaching way past her shoulders. It looks as if she's broadcasting this from in front of a regular apartment building. My name is Sewell, and it is really good to see you, she says. I apologize for not meeting you in person, but we don't have much time, and we're still hoping to find others. We're a very small bunch of survivors. Earth is no longer a viable place for us. We're offering you safe harbor. The woman in the video turns as if someone is calling to her. I'm sorry for the briefness, but we hope you will join us. The transmission ends, and I'm back to staring at the robot. Safe harbor. No, this is my home. And I don't care where this thing came from or what this stranger is offering. I'm not leaving to go to some unknown. All I can think of is someone will convert me into a robot or a zombie or a slave or whatever. You said you're from something-something geese. Where is that? And why doesn't your owner meet me in person? Why send a messenger? They don't want to scare you. So they decided to send me a killer 3PO instead? Unbelievable, I say. Is she from Jersey or something? No, from the planet humans called Gleese 3 Yeah, I heard you the first time. I interrupt the speech. If I don't return with you, what happens? Your survival rate will diminish. In five days, the Earth will shift. The earth shifts? What is this thing talking about? What do you mean the earth will shift? A massive earthquake will destroy this building and you. This is a setup. This walking drone and its owner Sewell are liars. There's no way they would know any of this. An earthquake? Get out of here with that nonsense. Tell your owner, no thanks. I'm good. You can leave now. The robot turns around and does a whole parkour flip off the side of the roof. I run and catch it as it lands perfectly on the courtyard below. The machine starts running until I can't see it anymore. If the thing says it's from some planet, why is it roaming the BX and not flying off? I don't believe any of this. This is a horrible dream where my own private dystopia has transformed into a science fiction slash horror documentary. I stay on the roof for hours, listening and waiting for the almost certain ambush. It's only a matter of time before this silver army invades. An earthquake. Never mind that sorry tale. We haven't felt an earthquake in years. This is New York, not California. 
And if there are all these survivors, why haven't I seen them? Whoever programmed Robo should have come up with a better story. For the first time in months, I lock everything up on the roof. I secure myself tightly and double-check the building's entrances. The crying room feels crowded today. I plop down on one of the cushions and light one of the Botanica candles. Blue for calm. I've been waiting so many months for any sign of life to deliver me from this nightmare. I should be happy, right? Instead, I'm stuck wondering if there is a diabolical mastermind lying to get me out of this building. A weird Elon Musk type who will probably convert the projects into luxury high-rises with personal robot servants. Him and his army of tin cans. I press the left paw, and Poppy's singing lets the tears flow even more. What I would do to have him by my side right now. He would know how to handle this, protect me from this uncertainty. Every day has been a struggle. I stopped asking why I survived this and not my family a long time ago. I went down that depressing path already. The conclusion I came up with was it didn't matter. And now I'm being forced to make a decision. The ten cans spoke of other survivors, but offered absolutely no proof. It talked about a planet and the threat of a trembling Earth. I'm scared because if there's anything I've learned from Poppy, it's that strangers are out for themselves. When death is near, people get really desperate. I don't want to think back on those days when I barricaded myself in this apartment, while those out there thought I held the key to their salvation. If they could have spilled my blood, then maybe they could have saved themselves. I did things I never imagined I was capable of doing to prevail. And now this. Tell me, Bobby, what am I supposed to do? My neck is stiff from sleeping on the floor of the crying room. There's no way I can follow a schedule when nothing is certain. I scrap my usual plans and decide on taking a different route. If there are survivors, then they must be set up nearby. I need to see for myself. No roof for us, I say. We're going on a mission. I never take them with me. But things are changing, and I don't believe we are safe on the roof anymore. I leave equipped with weapons. I don't even know how to use any of these things. Guns, knives. My family wasn't about that, and neither were my friends. But I have to be. We slowly patrol our block and then add another street over. I don't enter the abandoned buildings. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. Hello? Tin Man, are you there? I got questions. Nothing. Quiet. 
My legs hurt after hours of walking. No sign of any life. Eventually, I collapse in front of a bodega. Maybe I dreamt it all up. A really bad trip of some kind where a robot spoke to me about safe harbors. I don't know. How is it that I could accept being the only girl in the world, or at the very least, the only girl in the Bronx, and I can't accept a robot appearing to me on a rooftop? What do you think we should do? I ask. Their floppy ears practically reach the sidewalk. I gently push the ears away from getting dirty. Then I move them closer to me and drape my arm around their shoulders. Why can't you give me a sign? Do I go with them or do we fend for ourselves like we've always done? Talk to me. The giant bunny just stares at me with that cute face. I lift the stuffed toy and hold it tight. There was a time when the rabbit smelled like home. Now it smells like me. And I hate that. Let's get back to our story. It's been five days. No sign of the robot or of earthquakes. Not much sleep, either. I've done my patrols and been ever vigilant, but found nothing out of the ordinary. All the while, I kept thinking, we made it this far without the help of anyone. Today is the day, and I woke up angry. No one is going to chase us away from our home, I say, while strapping them to my back. We're having breakfast on the roof. The rooftop garden is exactly the way I left it five days ago. I take care of the neglected soil, water the plants that need watering, cut off dry leaves. Feels good to pull out a couple of carrots that are perfectly ready for me to enjoy. I peeled the carrots and cut pieces to add to my bean salad. A few clouds obscure the sun, but the weather is pretty normal. I sit and wait, because what else is there for me to do? Something is going down, and I'm not ready for it, but I can pretend that I am. What kind of sign would an earthquake give? I pressed the right paw and listen to Mommy's voice, just like I've done every day. I only have their voice in this stuffed animal, this memory. I mouth along to the words I've listened to countless times. I let their love surround me and try to quell this growing fear. The metallic sound is unlike anything I've heard before. One robotic claw appears on the ledge of the roof, and then another. I stand, clutching the rabbit's paw with Mommy's voice, still wishing me a happy birthday. In my other hand is the gun. I shoot and completely miss. The robot continues forward. There is no more time. The building will not survive the forthcoming tremor. You must leave. Get away from us! 
The robot inches closer, and I keep moving farther back to the other end of the roof. A loud crashing sound drowns everything around me, and then it happens. The shaking is sudden, and I am unable to hold my balance. The robot comes closer, and I'm on the ledge of a moving roof. Come with me, it says. I shake my head. The earthquake intensifies. I can't stand up for much longer. The building sways, and I drop to my knees. I'm sliding. My whole body is sliding. We're slipping off this building. Oh, my God! I grab a hold of the ledge. I'm going to die here, fall down with this building to my death. I can't hold on to both of us. It's not possible. No! The giant stuffed bunny. I can't hold on to it for much longer. My hand is getting sweaty and I'm slipping from this ledge. I can't hold on to both things, the ledge and my family. You have to let go or you will fall. The tin man stands above me on the moving roof, its claw extending out. I can't. Please, save my family. I'm losing my grip on their paw. I've protected them for this long. I can't fail now just because of an earthquake. I will not. I don't care if it's me that falls ten stories. I will not lose them. Please... Help me. The robot grabs hold of my wrist and I scream out in pain because it's not human hands, but a claw trying to keep us all from sliding off this roof. But the robot can't do both and we tumble. I scream as my hand lets go of my family. Ten stories are nothing. The sidewalk quickly approaches, but the tin man runs down the side of the building, pushes off of it, then cradles my body. Within mere seconds of hitting the ground, I am instead being held by the robot. A few steps away, I see the giant bunny given to me by my family. Parts of the project come crashing down on it, but I run toward it anyway. We must leave now, the robot says. Another shift from the Earth will happen, and it will be the final one. But my family! Rocks continue to rain down from above. I ignore the pounding from the stones on my body and dig, trying my hardest to reach them. The earthquake is relentless. It's impossible to keep steady, but I can't leave them behind. I won't. The robot urges me to go. You will be reunited with the other survivors. You will live only if you leave now. Not much of a living if I can't hear my family's voice. What is there to look forward to? The building I grew up in, where I shared so much joy with my family, crumbles. A large piece of the roof teeters on the brink of collapsing, aiming right down on me. Another thundering crash alerts me to what will surely be my end if I stay here. I scream out in anguish. Where? I finally say. 
in between sobs. This way. The robot goes forward, and I try my best to keep up with it, but it's hard. The earth still shakes like a bouncy house. I don't scream, I just follow the tin man and pray I make it out in one piece. Later. Morn again later. Right in the middle of the Grand Concourse is a large, rustic ship, levitating like some sort of futuristic Titanic. It envelops the whole avenue, and the vastness of it takes my breath away. The woman from the video stares down at me from the bridge of the floating ship. Various people peer out from small oval windows. A young boy, my age, two slightly older girls, an abuela, a man. Everyone's different. Survivors, like me. Welcome, Sewell shouts from this strange ship. Welcome! The tin man offers its claw to help me board. I turn to face my former home as it sways back and forth. I hold on to the robot and take a step forward. There's so much in this story that uh, <laughs> that um, I resonate with. You see, we are <laughs> we are all suffering from unexpressed grief, right? I mean, we we have done nothing as a nation to mourn our losses. We've done nothing as a planet, certainly, to mourn the vast numbers of lost loved ones. And I, I don't see m- many of us doing any sort of personal mourning at all. We, we are moving ahead through life a- as if the past couple of years um, were but a distant memory. And, and I just don't believe that's true. The scene in the story when she says, I allow myself five minutes to cry. Because there's work to do. But I, I've, I've watched enough naked and afraid to know that when you are in the wilds by yourself, your survival depends on a routine. And for her, part of her routine was mourning. And that's healthy. She spent five minutes at a time 
morning. It's, it's, it's a ritual morning, and we need to approach it as an integral part of being alive, mourning that which we have lost. It's so critically important to the human being, to the human spirit. One of the reasons that we take a breath before these stories is because I, I like to create the space before the breath and after the breath. There is ritual to it, and in the ritual, there is healing made available to us. We, we need, I believe, to create more opportunities in our lives to be in the moment. I, heard, I read the other day, the average human attention span right now is roughly eight seconds. That's insane. But we are living in this reality that causes us to want to move from one thing to another, to another, to another, not just in our actions, but in our thoughts. And so I I want us to engage right now in a little ritual of breathing. It's something that we are all, (laughs) at this point, we're all really familiar with. And, um, and so let's just uh, take three breaths. Okay, here we go. And inhale. And exhale. And inhale. And exhale. And one last time. Inhaling light and exhaling grief. I'm going to try and spend more time in my life going forward. Reminding myself to be in this now moment. And if you don't mind, I'm going to remind you as well. Be in this moment. Be in this moment with me. Be in this moment with yourselves. All right? All right. I'll see you next time. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. Our fabulous researcher is L.D. Lewis, always happy to have you aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design courtesy of the spectacular skills of Mr. Justin Asher. Our original theme and credits music is by our own Brendan Burns. Thanks to Talon Stradley for his invaluable production support. My thanks today to Lilium Rivera for allowing me to read her story. If you liked it, check out any of her young adult or middle grade novels, the latest of which is called Barely Floating. Visit liliumrivera.com. That's Lilium, 
with an N. If you like the podcast, one of the best things you can do to support it is to tell a friend. Just pick an episode and send them the link. Share the short fiction wealth. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And if you want to find me on the internet, I'm LeVar.Burton on Instagram, at LeVar Burton on Twitter, or the LeVar Burton on TikTok. You can also go to LeVarBurton.com. And hey, if you want to join my book club, go to fable.co slash LeVar. We're reading together, y'all. Come join us. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. 